Galatians 5, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. pray together. Dearly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the truth that it holds for us, Lord, as it reveals to us uh, what we must believe concerning you and what duty you require of us. Lord, we pray now that as your word is opened, that you would grant, uh, grant us the hearts to receive it. Lord, may we see it as the word of God, not the word of man. Lord, we pray that you get me out of the way, maybe your truth that is spoken and nothing else. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would cause your word to come alive in the hearts of your people, and that you'd be glorified in us now and always. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again with our Galatians series, and uh, we continue in a section here on sanctification, or what we call growing in holiness. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been working through the two lists that Paul has given us in order to contrast a life lived according to the flesh with a life lived according to the Spirit. So as we saw from Paul, a life that is lived where the sinful nature is calling the shots will manifest various types of sinful works. And Paul gave us a few varied examples in verses 19 to 21. And then he contrasted this list with the fruit that will be produced in those who walk according to the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, etc. Now, for our sermon this morning, we come to another excellent passage, one that I've been looking forward to, as it continues to outline for us how we are to view ourselves as Christians. So let's pick up where we left off at the end of the list of the fruit of the Spirit in verse 23. Let's read together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then Paul concludes, against such things, there is no law. Now we pick up with this phrase, what does he mean by against such things, there is no law? Well, first, this could mean that those who are led by the Spirit are demonstrating through their lifestyle that they are not subject to the Mosaic law, in the sense that they are not under the condemnation of the law. Now we connect back to what we saw in verse 18, if you look up with me there, where Paul said, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so he explained then that Christians are those who have been set free from the penalty of the law through the finished work of Christ uh, on the cross and beyond. And so in that sense, we are not under the law, we are not subject to its penalties, we will not be condemned by the law, and so therefore those who are led by the Spirit, those who are Christians, are not under the law in that way. And so that could be what Paul is picking up on here. Uh, those who manifest the fruit of the Spirit are giving ev evidence that they are led by the Spirit, therefore Christians, and therefore not under the law, not under the penalty of the law. And so we say that against these things there is no law, 
Or perhaps even, the law is not against those who do such things. They will not be condemned by it. They are displaying through this fruit that they are Christians. Another suggestion is that Paul, with this phrase, is attempting to demonstrate that the Christian ethics he is promoting in this list are in harmony with the law of God. As he argued in chapter 3, verse 21, uh, the promises of God, uh, the message of salvation by grace through faith alone, is not in any way contrary to the law of God. It is not against the law in any way. And so in the same way, Paul could be saying here that a life lived according to the Spirit will not lead to a life that is contrary in any way to God's holy law. And against such things as these, there is no law, and certainly not God's law. Continue on, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, this is an immensely important topic, or I should say this passage touches on an immensely important topic. In fact, this right here is at the core of how we are to view ourselves as Christians and how we are to understand the Christian life as a whole. So he begins, those who belong to Christ Jesus. So we have Christians in view here. Those who are Christ's, those who belong to Christ. And as we've seen in the context of Galatians, uh, we understand the importance of this idea. Those who belong to Christ, those who are in him, united to him by faith, are the heirs of the promises to Abraham, Galatians 3.29. To belong to Christ Jesus is to be saved, right? to have salvation, to be a Christian, to be no longer under the curse of the law, but to have been justified through faith. And so Paul says, something is true of those who belong to Christ Jesus. There is a reality for those who belong to Christ Jesus. He says it is this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, what does that mean? Well, the flesh in this context is referring, again, to our sinful nature. And we know all mankind is fallen in Adam. Ever since sin entered humanity through Adam, our covenantal representative, every human who comes into the world in the usual way, has been born with a sinful nature, with sinful desires. And so we are called, by nature, children of wrath, in Ephesians 2, verse 3. And as we've seen in this passage, even after we become Christians, we still have to deal with the flesh, our sinful nature. That's what we've been looking at here in verse 16. Paul said, We must therefore walk by the Spirit, and then we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So he introduced this antithesis there, this conflict between what the Spirit of God wants and what our own sinful flesh wants. And so when Paul speaks of the flesh with its passions and desires, this is what he means. The sinful nature, our former self, 
our fallen, sinful condition with its sinful passions and desires, affections and lusts. So, how is the Christian to regard himself? Right? How do we view ourselves? What is the relationship of the Christian uh, to his flesh with its passions and lusts? We could ask, may those who belong to Christ Jesus indulge their sinful flesh. May those who belong to Christ Jesus live according to the flesh. May we cling to those passions and desires, perhaps so long as we don't act on them. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So notice, a Christian is one who has done this. It is a reality. It has happened. To have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires is therefore definitional to being a Christian. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so when we become Christians, this is how we ought to view things. Our former selves, our former way of life, the way that we were before we knew Christ, or better, were known by Him, our old self, our old man, the part of us that lived in sin, delighted in sin, lived in rebellion to God and His law, that man is dead. He was crucified with Christ. And positionally, this is true. This is the reality. This is how God views things. When Jesus was crucified, all the sins of his people were laid upon him. If you are a Christian, your sin was laid upon him. He endured the wrath of God for your sin. So when you think of the cross of Christ, you can picture your old self, your sinful nature, everything you have or will do wrong, being crucified there with Christ. And in a way, when you look at the cross of Christ, picture your, yourself, your old nature, being crucified with him. For the wrath was poured out. The sin was dealt with. Your old self, your flesh, with its passions and desires, was crucified with Christ, is dead and buried. But Christ did not stay dead. He rose to new life. Now at the very heart of the gospel is the idea of union with Christ. Through faith, we are joined to him so that what he did is counted to us. What Christ did provides a picture, therefore, of how we ought to view ourselves. So think of this. Condemned as a sinner, crucified, died, dead, and buried and then risen to new life. There is the paradigm for the Christian life. 
And so positionally, the way God views you, if you are in Christ, is exactly as if you had not Christ did. Through your union with him, his life of obedience to the law is counted as your life of obedience to the law. His death for sin is counted as your death for sin. His burial is counted as your burial. And you must reckon it so. The old man, the sinful nature, is dead and gone. It was crucified with Christ, dead and buried. But just as Christ was raised to new life, you also have been raised to spiritual life so that you are no longer who you once were. This is the argument in Romans chapter 6, and you can turn with me there. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So notice Paul argues that baptism is being buried with Christ. He says we are, we, we are baptized into his death and then raised to new life. It is a glorious picture of the transformation of a Christian. Our sinful nature, with its passions and desires, was crucified with Christ, nailed to the cross, and then we were baptized, pardon me, were buried with Christ in our baptism and emerge a new creation. We emerge to walk in new life just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father. So notice then, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection serves as a picture of what happens to every Christian in their conversion. Becoming a Christian means we die to sin, our old self is buried with Christ, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Doug Wilson put it well. Jesus was crucified so that you and your sins could be crucified with him. Jesus was buried so that you and your sins could be buried with him. And Jesus rose from the dead so that you and not your sins, you and not your sins, could come out of the grave. True conversion to Christianity, therefore, involves a change. There is transformation that occurs. To use the biblical language from John 3, we are born again. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
Ezekiel 36, the Holy Spirit has removed our heart of stone and granted us hearts of flesh, hearts that work. We are made new, raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. God has made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. So to bring all of this home, to apply this glorious doctrine, the message is this. Become who you truly are. You are holy in Christ, so live holy. You are righteous through Christ, so live righteously. Your flesh, with its passions and desires, has been crucified with Christ. So how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we whose sinful lusts were crucified with Christ still wallow in the sin of pornography? How can we whose hearts have been made new still chafe at the commandments of God? How can we, who have been set free from the power of sin, return back to it to be enslaved by it once again? How can we, who are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, still walk according to the flesh? O oh, Christian, become who you truly are. You were called to freedom, brothers. And that is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And 6, 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this is one area where an important doctrine can get easily misapplied. Now we speak often of the reality of man's sinful nature, or the biblical doctrine of total depravity, or the teaching that sin has infected and affected every part of us so completely that without the intervention of God's grace, we cannot come to him. What we must understand, though, is that while this was our nature, this is not who we are anymore. We have been given the Spirit of the living God. Our sinful flesh was crucified with Christ with its passions and desires. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so we must not ever use the fallenness of our sinful nature as an excuse for our sin. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of the living God. You have been set free. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We saw recently, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out that you may stand up on your own. You have what you need. 
If you are in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to your flesh. But there is freedom. Which is why Paul can say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, passions in the Greek is kathima, and it means to experience a strong feeling, deep emotion, uh, such as agony, uh, passion, ardent desire, uh, suffering, etc. The word desires in the Greek is epithumia, and it means desire, passionate longing, or lust. Uh, the Helps Word Study puts it uh, properly, passion built on strong feelings or urges. So we see that in our battle against sin, we must go down deep. The flesh, our sinful nature, produces its own passions and desires. We will feel deep emotions, ardent desires, passionate longings for sinful things. As we've seen, the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And so we see then it is not enough to simply say that we have a sinful desire but are not acting on it. We must identify, is my desire, is this longing, this passionate desire in me, something that comes from the Spirit, or does it come from my sinful flesh? So you notice, down to the level of our passions, our wants, our affections and desires, that there is no neutrality. That these desires are not neutral, but we see there is a category of desires, of wants, affections, which are produced by the flesh, which are rotten to the core. And so we are to consider ourselves, the Christian, the one who belongs to Christ Jesus, is one who has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is extremely relevant to the so-called gay Christian movement. Now, advocates for this perspective will claim deep and abiding sexual desires for members of their same sex, and so they will identify themselves as gay. They recognize, however, that God has forbidden homosexuality, and so they will call themselves gay celibate Christians. Now, in an interview with the former gay man who had become a Christian, the interviewer asked him this question. He says, there are conversations today about whether one can be a gay Christian. Is there a way to reconcile Jesus with having a gay identity? And here is the man's response. They are irreconcilable. It's strange to me to see these attempts. He says, I had such a clean break from it, and it was entirely God's grace upon me to see that it was necessary. He asked, would you call yourself a greedy Christian? Would you call yourself a tax collector Christian? It seems strange to identify yourself with sin. It's a square circle. 
Defining yourself as a gay Christian, even if you are celibate and not active in a homosexual relationship, is wildly misleading. And it's almost like you're stewing in your old sin, hanging on to your old self in a weird way. It's not helpful to have that moniker over you and to continually identify as such. Here he hits the nail on the head. Why would you identify with your old self that has been crucified with Christ? He goes on, so I flee from that term as far as I can. It is not who I am at all. If people ask me how I identify, I'm just like, I don't identify by my sexuality. I'm a follower of Christ who has a lot of struggles, it says, including same-sex attraction, close quote. The desires and passions of the flesh have been crucified with Christ. They therefore do not define us they are not who we are. We are new creatures in Christ. And so anything at all that belongs to our sinful nature, we are to consider as having been crucified with Christ. And so in our battle for holiness, we must not stop short. Notice it is not only sinful actions, but sinful desires and passions that we are to count as having been crucified with Christ. Those things do not define us anymore. We are new in Christ Jesus. Our old self has died, crucified with Christ, and we do not live by our flesh any longer, but we now live by the Spirit. And that brings us to verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. As F.F. Bruce comments, if the Spirit is the source of our life, let the Spirit also direct our course. We must march in line, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Bruce continues, walking by the Spirit is the outward manifestation in action and speech, of living by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit is the root. Walking by the Spirit is the fruit. And that fruit is nothing less than the practical reproduction of the character and therefore the conduct of Christ in the lives of his people. Close quote. So to keep in step with the Spirit is to be living in the way that the Holy Spirit would have us live. So what does that look like practically? How do we grow to keep in step with the Spirit? Well, we know that all human beings, having been made in the image of God, have a conscience. Right? We all have this little inner voice telling us what is right and wrong. Maybe you've seen it in movies portrayed by the little shoulder angel and the shoulder devil on your shoulders telling you, you know, trying to impact your decisions. Um, so everybody has this conscience. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit guides us is through our consciences. We have a sense of what is right and wrong. And the Holy Spirit guides us by prompting us to follow the right path. If you look back in verse 17, we can see a bit of how that plays out. Paul wrote there, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh to keep you from doing the things you want to do. <laughs> right there, you've got the little angel and devil on the shoulder. Right? These two conflicting voices. And so we see not only does our sinful nature produce desires within us, but the Holy Spirit produces contrary desires. Where our fallen nature produces sinful desires, the Holy Spirit produces desires within us to do what is right and pleasing to God. And so the person who is walking by the Spirit, who is led by the Spirit, who is keeping in step with the Spirit, is the person who acts on the desires of the Spirit rather than on the desires of the flesh. So the Spirit guides us, convicts us of sin, and prompts us to do righteousness. And so keeping in step with the Spirit means following His prompting, His leading, His guiding, rather than following the desires of our flesh. Now one thing we do need to keep in mind here again is that due to our fallen nature, we may sometimes struggle to discern what is right and wrong in a given situation. Right? We ask, are these feelings truly the guidance of the Spirit, or are we simply producing them in ourselves? We need to understand, you, our consciences are not infallible. Right? People can be raised in certain ways that cause them to view things as right or wrong that the Bible may not agree with. And so the best safeguard for, here, for us here is Scripture. The Holy Spirit, who indwells his people, will never contradict the word he inspired. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Now, yes, we know the Bible was written by men, but as Peter said, it was not only men, but men who spoke from uh, God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul can say, all Scripture is Theonistos, it is God-breathed revelation. And so God is not inconsistent with himself. And so the Holy Spirit will never contradict the word that he inspired. God will never contradict himself. And so as we come across churches or preachers that are rejecting some clear doctrine of Scripture, again, sexual ethics being the hot-button issue of the day, we can be very, very certain that despite what they tell us, it was not the Holy Spirit of God who led them to reject His Word. Whatever spirit they may have been listening to, it was not the Holy Spirit. And so as we strive to keep in step with the Spirit, learning to follow the desires of the Spirit in our lives, we must inform our consciences with Scripture. We must inform our consciences with Scripture. The better you know the Word of God, the more familiar you become with His law, His commandments, His instructions, and therefore His character, the easier it will be for you to apply these things in your lives. You know, when we're brand new Christians, especially if we don't know the Bible very well, it can be very easy for someone to deceive us if what they're saying sounds right and perhaps even tugs at our hearts in a certain way. 
We can hear things our itching ears want to hear, and to a part of us, that feels very right. We must be cautious to consider that feeling to be the leading of the Spirit. So we need to get into the Word for ourselves. Become familiar with God. Learn His character as it's expressed through His law and commandments, and you will become much more difficult to deceive. Not every feeling that you get is from the Holy Spirit, and so you must shape your conscience through Scripture. Verse 26, let's continue on. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so Paul brings here a contrast. He has said the Galatians are to walk in step with the Spirit and not become conceited. They must not become vainglorious, puffed up with pride over nothing, conceited, full of themselves. They are not to provoke one another, to treat each other with contempt, as conceited people are prone to do. They are not to be driven by envy or covetousness. Now Paul likely mentions these sins in particular, as it was things like these that had contributed to the conflict in Galatia. The Judaizers, you may remember, had been boasting in their flesh, in their circumcision, in their lineage, and Paul has made clear that that was all vainglory. That was much ado about nothing. It gave them no real advantage or standing before God. And so their provocations and their envy had been ripping these churches apart. Paul explains, these things are not what will characterize people who are walking by the Spirit. The true gospel, when understood and applied rightly, will lead to unity. For we see that that which would divide us is overshadowed by that which binds us together. Our ancestry has no bearing. The family we come from grants us no automatic special standing. What our lives were like before Christ gives us no ground for boasting. For we know that all are made right with God in the exact same way. Finished work of Jesus Christ. And so whoever you are, whatever you've done or haven't done in the past, you, right here, right now, can be accepted before God in the exact same way as every other Christian. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so then, how can I boast over someone else when God accepts them for the exact same reason? That he accepts me. Consider, it was not your righteousness that gained you a right standing before God. It was the righteousness of Christ who lived the life of obedience that you and I have failed to live. We did nothing, we could do nothing to make ourselves right with God by our own efforts and work. 
But it was in His grace and mercy that God gave His one and only Son to die on the cross and to rise again. To become the propitiation for our sins, to purchase our salvation, to secure our redemption, and to reconcile us to God. So let us not become conceited. Even the good things that you have done in your life were produced in you by the Holy Spirit. Right? You may have done good things, I'm sure we all have, but who placed those desires in us? Who changed our hearts when we were yet dead in transgressions and sins? Who has provided grace for us in every moment that we may live a life that is pleasing to God? Brothers and sisters, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Everything truly good in us was produced in us by God. Any truly good works we have done were done in the strength that God supplied. They have been done through the grace that is with us, so that we may truly be able to say, Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. So let us not become conceited. Let us not look down on anyone. For it is only through the grace of God that we have been accepted before him, and there is nobody beyond the reach of God's grace. They can be accepted in the same way that you were. They will then be joined to the same body of Christ, indwelt with the same Holy Spirit, and will come in faith to partake of the body and blood of Christ at the same so brothers and sisters, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. Those sins are things that belonged to our sinful nature, produced by the flesh, and for those who belong to Christ Jesus, the flesh, with its passions and desires, have been crucified. So let us grow into the kind of unity that forms when people understand and truly live out the gospel. Let us grow into who we truly are. Redeemed and transformed saints, destined for glory, holiness, and immortality. May our lives and our worship display the beauty and the joy of this glorious hope and of our glorious God. May we keep in step with the Spirit and so produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. May our lives redound in all things to the glory of God. Amen.